0: Shane McAkron! Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to Rock of Nations with Dave and Shane. Rock of Nations with Dave Shane. Hey, everybody, this is Joel Inter. Hi, everybody, this is Rob Halford. The 3D Soldier. Hi, this is Steve Hackett. Hey, folks, is this is Rick Emma Triumph, and we're
1: talking rock with Dave and Shane. Oh! Oh!
0: Oh, <laughs> my <laughs>
2: Are back in action and doing this back in the car like the old days. Yeah. We're back in the vehicle, in the live vehicle, doing the show, you know, going back to the roots. You know, I was listening to the old tapes and man, we had so much fun. Yeah, we really did. And uh, brother Shane, we got Carl Palmer on the show talking Asia and Asia live at the Budokan Arena. Carl, <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude, I love this. And I now, love this interview,
3: man. Yeah,
2: and now I know we have more to edit. <laughs> no, I'm just
3: we're kidding. leaving that in. No, no, we're leaving
2: that in. That's fine. Oh, man. Now, this is Tokyo, December 1983. And uh, tell us about this, brother, and how cool. First of all, this was an awesome chat. I mean, this was like... Oh, we covered yeah, a lot. We covered so much. Wow. A lot. Uh, we we uh, started with
3: Arthur Brown. You're yeah. going to love it. Uh, Atomic Rooster. We got into a whole bunch of stuff with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Composing, writing songs yeah. on the fly with with
2: Keith his new tour um Greg you know, Lake yep um and and how he remembers Greg how he remembers Keith right yeah. and it was just so cool like because I mean, he's I mean it's bittersweet he's the last surviving member right. obviously of ELP and um it's he takes it very personally to make sure uh, that he's keeping that legacy alive you know yeah. um but also Asia of course and just so I mean so we covered so much ground now Arthur Brown even reached out after yes. um after this chat which was great and we'd love to have arthur on the show too we would. but so much history yeah carl was
3: actually going to go to arthur brown's show um shortly after the taping i think he's probably going right about now when we're actually putting the show together yeah he, we did this interview a couple weeks ago yep. but um still friends uh that was his first band uh, if you ever heard "Fire" from Arthur Brown, you know "Fire." Yeah, oh yeah. Classic song, amazing record. The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. That was that was Carl Palmer's first band. That was the guy that brought him in, and he didn't play on the whole record, but he's pretty sure he played on "Fire" and a bunch of other tracks. Yeah. But Arthur was like the Gene Simmons, Alice
2: Cooper of his time. Right. Uh, that far back, really, when yeah. you think about it, I mean, one of the like the, the founder of Shock Creative, not really. You wouldn't really yeah. call it Shock, you? Yeah. I guess yeah. you call it, Yeah, you call it Shock. There was nobody doing do Yeah, what nobody was, was doing that. Yeah,
3: it was like bizarre psychedelic stuff with fire and other yep. things and the makeup. Yeah, the hey, white you, makeup with the.
2: One second, <clears throat> sorry, I had a sniff. <clears throat> sorry, about that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That
3: sniff brought to you by Shore Microphone. <laughs> <Now>. <laughs> sorry about that. The 267 shore mic is audible all, all sound and crystal clarity, especially when it comes to now. <laughs> no, I mean, this release um, has been a long time coming. A lot of Asia fans. Uh, this was a big deal in the 80s. It was a 1983 show. Satellite. In, yeah. In, yep, in satellite. Tokyo. And it's finally now getting the remastered treatment and, and put out in a deluxe set. Two CD, two LP. 40-page, 12-inch book, and a Blu-ray, mm-hmm. you know. And this is kind of what the police did with their recent uh,
2: release around the world. It Wasn't that cool? Yeah. That was like, the, yeah, that was, I. and I was hoping for, and uh, I had some of the questions, you know. When that came out, I was thinking back to all the questions I had for Miles Copeland, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah, that was amazing. Um, but this was like, um, you know, yeah, December 6, 1983, like you said, uh, you know, this was the first live broadcast between Japan and mtv in america and a big big thing that they did at that yeah. time like just you know huge and, and you think about where technology is today and with youtube and it's like you know it's, it's mind-blowing it's on another level okay. you know and you think about the lineup on this
3: uh this band this version of asia is probably one of the the baddest ass I, bad, I don't even know how to say it. it's just a badass lineup yeah jeff downs Keyboards and vocals. Steve Howe, guitar and vocals. Carl Palmer, obviously on drums. Yep. And their special guest was Greg Lake on uh, bass and lead vocals. Yeah. I mean, come on, dude. That's 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 a super group. <laughs> that's a super super group. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, John obviously. Uh, John John Wetton was um, struggling with alcoholism. Yep. And some health issues, and he did not make this tour. Yeah. Which I didn't know. I, I, I actually saw this show and I didn't remember. I guess I just thought yeah. Jeff was, was John. I didn't...
2: Well, the voice was very, very right, similar. Very similar. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I have to agree. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Time Again, Only Time Will Tell, yeah. Wildest Dreams, Soul Survivor, and, of course, Heat of the Moment. Yeah. Heat yeah. of the Moment. <laughs> 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 I'm leaving now. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, it's it, it, it has that great live feel. Like when you hear it, it's like man, oh man, you know. Do so you feel like, um, what, you know, because you're, you're a little bit older than me, you know, um, did when you saw live shows back then, did did it feel different than sound different than say what you hear now when you go to a show? Like did, was it more? maybe was it an analog thing or yeah, I think like it, just yeah, more I th- raw almost you know yeah
3: it was um it, it was it had a warmer feel there wasn't the yeah the, i love those those old amps and those old that, yeah. old, that old whole feel I, I i still to this day think sometimes shows sounded better then than they do now yeah. Oh, yeah. like i i all the digital stuff and sometimes I just feel like
2: some of that warmth is lost.
3: Yeah. I know that sounds cliche, but... No, I, I
2: think I know what you mean, because I, I, you know, I hear some of that oh. stuff, and it's like, God, that just sounds so... Let's take Coldplay,
3: yeah. for example. Yep. We, we both were... We went with our, our respective others and yep. stuff, and we went to see Coldplay and Her. hmm And when Her was on, there were... Um, she's amazing, by the way. Great
2: guitar... Oh, man.
3: Singer, like, guitar. She's like a female prince. She's incredible. Slash Lenny Kravitz. Ugh, amazing. But... but the sound, man, I, I just don't ever remember going to shows that sounded that tinny. Yeah.
2: Right. And,
0: that,
3: and that, like, yeah. it, it wasn't the whole time, but I don't know if it was the wind blowing or what. Or sort amp, of compressed. Something moving, but it yeah. was really compressed. And yeah. It was almost uh, a little little too much to handle from where we were
2: sitting. It was weird, yeah. In the 200 section. There were times, you know, I couldn't hear the guitar, or it was just mm-hmm. like, it's like what? What are they doing? What is that? Is it just? Uh, it's I don't know. It was very strange. And then a yeah. lot of this stuff sounded very much like um, not not to knock Coldplay, but a lot of it sounded very much like off the albums, you know, like mm-hmm. the tr- sequencing and, and things like that, and versus just like live, you know. And again, not to knock the band, but I don't know. No, it's, we're not knocking the yeah, band. Yeah, they're all. great. Yeah, and uh, but, we're not
3: knocking the mix. It's just yeah, it's just it's just it's, the it's, way it's different. It just things feels, sound, yeah. you know, like when I saw Bon Jovi or Kix or. Or uh, Cheap Trick in a small venue back in the day. Yep. It, it was in your face. You heard every instrument. You heard Robin. You heard Steve Whit- Whiteman. You heard whoever was singing. Yeah. And it sounded just pure. Yeah. It was like the record was being... That's awesome. ...performed yeah. live right in front of you. And, yeah, yeah I'm, sh- I'm sure that... I'd love to compare them, though. I really would. Yeah, but, wouldn't it be interesting? That would be
2: a great comparison to have, yeah. Well,
3: you take, like the Fillmore East from the Almond Brothers and take that live recording and, and that that to me is what a live show used to sound like mm. versus now Yeah.
2: you know yeah. it's like yeah it's good but it's not Fillmore East right yeah you, <laughs> you gotta play the old records and yeah. enjoy a Friday night you know crack open an adult beverage and, and just try to relive the old days you know yeah I still don't think there will ever
3: be a live recording that will capture what what, yeah. you're, what you're seeing in person but yeah you know, especially the energy, and that, and again, we'll just revert to Coldplay. But like, have you ever seen a show like that? No, no, <laughs> what, never did, have. Did that kind of blow you away? No, it
2: was, the graphics were, the the design was incredible. Right? Yeah. You know, and I didn't realize there's a fifth member of the band, technically their creative director. I was reading about it, and uh, I mean, the the lights, and to have the wristband on, the the that lights up, and to really feel, you really felt like you were part of the show. Everybody yeah. was. It was really, it was really cool. You I mean, were part of the light show. Yeah, you were part of it. Yeah.
3: I just have not been to a show like that before. I've heard about them. I've seen them on yeah. TV here and there, and you know Super Bowls and stuff like that. But to be actually part of it was like that was really impressive. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. It that was, was really impressive. Yeah, that was so. And cool. Dave has one of those lights with him right yeah. now. Yeah,
2: <laughs> no, it's just he a different, just heard yeah. it <laughs> Sorry about that. But dude, smell. it was like
3: it, we were all part of it. Yeah. And it made it that much more special more and I, intimate, I'm yeah. not a big fan of Coldplay's recent material. I right. think it's absolutely, it's just not something that I will listen to. Yeah. Their last couple of albums have just not been my bag. The early stuff from Coldplay to me is classic. I think and so. Yeah. They, they did dig into a lot of that mm-hmm. in the show. Yellow being, I think for me, was the. Yeah.
2: That was the all song. Clocks, yeah. Oh, yeah. Clocks really. Fizzled. It, it it wasn't. Was it the rain that kind of was? It the, I think it was the rain. It? And yeah. they played it fast. They yeah. just
3: got it over, and, and there was no real light show. To it. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah they were just, trying to just get the show done. At it big. was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the weather came in. Oh, well, that just, was yeah. Fox. That was my favorite right. Coldplay song. That yeah. Basically went nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> but the BTS song, you know, exploded. Yeah. And I was like, wow. This yeah. is impressive. Yeah. That but,
2: was. They were just a little too poppy. I mean, I know they're pop, but it's a little too. Processed and you know, like ultra poppy. I wish they would have stuck to the original sound. Yeah, I would love an original album, like an album that goes back, going back to the roots, you know, would be great.
3: A lot of people have jumped off the the Coldplay bandwagon. Yeah. And um, I think they could be, they would have been Oasis or U2 at this Mm -hmm. point if they would have just stuck to what I mean, they're, I shouldn't say they're huge. They sold the stadium out. Yeah, what am I saying? But I'm just, I just wonder what they would still be like if they were like the first three albums before. yeah wouldn't that be yeah I know. but carl palmer yeah carl palmer speaking yeah going back to yeah
2: absolutely we uh we haven't done a show in a while and maybe it's this vibe being in the in the oh, old uh it. you know the old unit again um you know versus doing the zoom intros you know it's like uh it's great but it's like it's like yeah we just catch up you know we haven't seen each other in God, person in so a while much to so talk about yeah like. so much to catch up on and so much to catch up catch you up on including carl Palmer, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll this. Ooh. The history of Carl Palmer, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: never meant to be so bad to you One thing I said that I would never do One to for you and I would fall from grave would wipe the smile out on my face Do you remember when we used to dance? And incidents arose from circumstance One thing led to another, we were young And we would speak together songs by song
2: We are so excited to talk about the uh, the box set, Asia and Asia. I mean, we were listening to um, the first track off of it. How does this feel to have this out and celebrate this this great legacy?
0: Well, I mean, it's the 40th anniversary, as you well know, and I think at the time we were we were pushing the um, we were pushing the envelope, as they say, because we were we were trying to hook up satellite with MTV into America from the Budokan on the 6th of December, uh, way back when, in the early 80s there, um, trying to get this thing to work. And we managed to get it work with the technology of the day which is quite remarkable because the actual broadcast itself sonically was perfect and visually had very few interruptions. Uh, it was almost well perfect. There's a DVD in the box, that I mean, you can view it. So we were very, very happy. It was a great moment in time. It was sad John Wetton couldn't be with us on that particular night, but as you know, John was uh, ill for quite a while. He was uh, an alcoholic and he was trying to get himself sorted out. And uh, he eventually did the last 14 years of his life. He was, um, he was straight as, you know, the next man. And he was singing a satellite broadcast there was an awful lot of pressure because prior to the concert, you could imagine there was quite a, a bit of rehearsal, not just on the technical side, but the band playing to make sure we could get the right levels for everyone and get the, the right feed going back out to MTV so we could broadcast this in America. So sure. it's quite an intense period. Sure. Well,
1: how, how did the whole MTV thing come down, Carl? Like, how did that... They just
0: approached you because you guys were big? It was really to do... We were signed to in Records, and David Gethin was extremely, um, you know, knowledgeable... And he knew a lot of people in the business. And the people at MTV, you know, he realized that what they were doing was the right way to promote music at the time. A bit like social media uh, right now. You know, a lot of bands use social media to get the word out there for touring and and place their videos, TikTok or whatever. At the time, it was MTV. And MTV, you know, were ready for any new challenges. And a satellite broadcast from Japan was right up their street, as they say. Mm. And David managed to sell it to them, and we bought the satellite time, which is incredibly expensive at the, at the time. And uh, you know, MTV just did a an unbelievable job. So it's really down to David getting. What?
2: What? Do you miss that? I mean, do you? Do, could you imagine something like that like that working today? I mean, obviously MTV doesn't play music, but uh, you know, if it was, I guess it would be a YouTube or something of that sort.
0: Yeah. So- I mean, I think, you know, that it should have happened a lot more. It happened a, a lot with sport, as you well know, with boxing and stuff, they had satellite broadcasts and things. And I think it, it should happen a lot more with uh, with music. And I, I think it also should go into movie theatres. So when you have like a huge band, a big band playing, or a couple of them, let's say the U2 and the Rolling Stones together or whatever, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that type of event, those things, should there should be a satellite broadcast. It should be something that people can pay to see at home, or they can go to their local local movie theater. Or you know, I think yeah, it should be that way because the technology now, forty years on, for broadcasting, you know, using satellites is a lot easier. You know, there's not there's not the danger that we had where you can lose everything. You know, um, now it's almost fail safe. So I think uh, I think it's a great thing to use, and I'm surprised that not more people that have done it. Mm. 1983 in Tokyo.
1: Tell us, who never got a chance to do this, what it's like to play in front of a Japanese audience back then. What, What was that like, that whole experience?
0: Well, I can go back further than that and go back to 1974, playing in front of a Japanese audience with Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You've got to realize I'm old, so, you know, (laughs) know, it's it's not my first rodeo going in with uh, Asia. This is my my second kind of dipping, as it were. So between 74 and and 83, the change in the audiences were immense. So in 84, they were very prim, very proper, wouldn't really clap too much until the tune had finished, would barely clap solos in Japan, until the whole tune was finished, then they would clap, and they'd clap politely. Um, By the time you get round to Budokan concerts, as you know, there's many great albums recorded in the Budokan, like Cheat Trick and so forth, and and whatever, just too many to even mention. Um, Kiss, I believe, also recorded there. When you get to that kind of period, and the Asia time, um, then they've changed completely. They've become more Westernized. They're a lot freer. They're a lot looser. They enjoy the concerts. They clap solos. They're not as reserved. So the change in that sort of ten-year period was absolutely immense, to be honest with you.
2: Meantime, speaking of VLP, of course you have the return of VLP tour, uh, and uh, you'll have Carl in your band, you in your band, of course, and uh, you'll have uh, Keith and Greg who will be projected on a video wall. Is this? Going to be an emotional moment for you? I mean, something I've been working on
0: since 2018. Mm. I started with holograms and visited people in Canada and LA, went through all of that. I was watching what was happening with holograms at the time with Ronnie James Dio, with Whitney Houston and it was all a little bit spooky for me and I wasn't too sure that that was the right thing to do. Obviously I needed to have the blessing of the Emerson family and of the Lake family before I did anything. Anyway we came up with an idea to use some live footage which was recorded exceptionally well here in London at the Royal Albert Hall. And at the Royal Albert Hall it was a five camera shoot and it was over two nights. Now this actually got released as a DVD, a live Emerson Lake and Palmer DVD. It was released during the period we were with Sanctuary Records. Sanctuary got sold out to Universal and this particular DVD happened to be released in that sort of month period where the changeover was going down. So the sales on this particular DVD weren't great at all. Uh, And it it got lost, basically. It really got lost in the wash. And things do happen like that. I mean, it does happen. And and to right now, uh, that's to my benefit that it didn't uh, sell as many and hasn't been seen by as many people because that particular live footage of Greg and Keith is absolutely outstanding. Mm. I mean, Greg looks great and playing great and singing great. Emerson is doing the, all those antics with his uh, L100, with the, the hammer and the knives, laying on the floor playing it. All of this footage is just absolutely mint footage. And it's <clears throat> it's epic. It is really epic. So once I'd revisited this DVD, I thought, this is what we need to do. I'll just check how good the sound quality is, because that worried me. When we got looked around to looking at the music stems and what was going on, everything was recorded separately everything was as clean as a beam i thought this is the way to go so that's what i've got and it's funny making this phone call uh, today with you guys is that i just finished editing uh fanfare for the common man wow and i managed to get uh, about um one two, i've got lucky man i'm going to be playing with greg and keith paper blood uh fanfare um, knife edge are we going to be doing a version of um, Still You Turn Me On? Um, there's going to be a piano solo in FM F which I will introduce, and obviously that will be a bit special. There's going to be about seven, six to seven pieces that I'll have, I'll have with me playing with them in situ, and then the rest of the evening will be uh, interspersed with. Um, me playing with Paul and Simon, things like Tarkas and Down and Carmina Barana and whatever. So it will be an interesting evening. And Greg and Keith will appear on the screens each side of the stage. Plus at the back will be another Digi wall, which, you know, uh, will all appear. I will appear on there. When they're at the front, I'll be at the back. There, but you'll be able to see me on the stage as well. So we haven't tried it yet, but we know that it will work. We know that it will be good, how good it is. We just have to wait and see. But I think it's, uh, I think it'll be quite um, uh, an emotional time for me. And I'm hoping it will bring some great memories back for a lot of real um, Emerson Lake and Palmer fans.
2: Just just to quickly follow up, I mean, how do you remember Keith and Greg? Like what, you know, what would just, how would you describe their legacies and and just the the legacy Um, of the band?
0: Well, I'd say, you know, Keith Emerson, um, Um, When I first met Keith and we started talking about music, within about 10 minutes we realised that the 10 jazz albums that I'd got were the same 10 jazz albums he'd got. Um, So there was a synergy there straight away. And then when I got talking to Greg, you know, because he was big into Simon and Garth, uncle, Bridge Over Troubled Water, to the Beatles and all of that. And I, you know, I'm a huge Beatle fan as well. So the, the synergy there was was equally as strong. And remembering them both, I mean, you've got a bookend there, really. They really couldn't survive with each other. though they, they fought a lot. They were still, you know, probably uh, the greatest musicians that I played with today. Keith Emerson, sure. You know, I doubt if I'll ever play with a keyboard player that good again, you know, that in my life. But at least I've done it once. and he, was a, he was just wonderful to play with he, uh, both of them were incredibly consistent their standards were very high and what they reproduced on a nightly basis was definitely superior to what was going on at the time even though i say it myself so something i'm really proud to have been in and that's why i've carried on with the elp legacy band and carried on looking at new ventures like putting them you know, on tour with me again, you know, but in a film format. So for me, it was a a great experience. And, you know, I've I've had a few successes in my life. Asia, obviously, you know, very big, you know, for that period of time, the first three albums. And then prior to that, you know, the Atomic Rooster, which you probably didn't know much about in America. Mm -hmm had a number one single here with Tomorrow Night, which I recorded, and they had to re-record it again because I joined Greg and Keith. And then prior to that, there was The Crazy World of Arthur Brown with Fire, which was the number one in America. So I've had a blessed career, and I can definitely say that working with Greg and Keith was one of the highlights, if not the highlight. What
1: what was your influence, Carl, as far as... uh drumming. Were you, were you, did you follow Keith Moon's style like a lot of drummers at the time, or were you more into the jazz? I mean, you just
0: kind of said... Um, I, I never really followed sort of, Keith Moon. He was a great friend, and he helped me tremendously. I did what they called a track tour, track records, which had the, yeah. the Small Faces, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown and the Who. And we toured England a couple of times, and uh, Keith was always incredibly nice when I had some broken equipment. Um, He said, you know, oh, let me help you out. And he had his own van just full of spare stands and bass drum pedals and what have you a very very nice person not somebody that i would copy didn't really need to copy uh, keith moon you know there was no point you know it's not somebody you try and sort of like follow i uh, for me you know he he wasn't really uh, he wasn't really a drummer he was more an instrumentalist because he didn't really keep time um john entmischel kept the time and and keith moon gave it the color and you know, he filled in all those gaps, which was absolutely wonderful. That is what the who were all about. The who are very important to me because when I was um, 15. It was the very first professional rock band mm. that I went to see, uh, the prof- a professional rock band that was actually in the charts with Can't Explain, which was their first single. And of course, when I saw them live when I was 15 years old, I thought, yeah, wow, that's a real band. That's how good you've got to be. You know, because they set a high standard to it. Yeah.
2: How, do you, um, how did you go about finding your sound and finding your your uh, style? I mean, can you just talk about, like like, when you knew... You had your I style.
0: Just, I just. I've just stolen from everyone that you could, um, you know, I have a huge rhythmical vocabulary. If you said to me, could I play uh, something from, you know, uh, Frankie Dunlop, who's a jazz drummer, you wouldn't even know him, but he played with Mulligan and people like that. Um, I-, I could play one of his riffs for you. If you said to me, play a Baby dog's riff," I could do that. If you said play Gene Kruber, Buddy Richard Lou, in the genre, I could do all of that. I have a huge rhythmical, musical vocabulary because I'm really, really interested. Um, so to Keith Emerson, if you said to him, "Could you play uh, a run on the piano that's similar to Earl Garner or could you play something that's a bit like Dave Brubeck or maybe Oscar Peterson? he could do that and you usually find that people who are really into their instrument absolutely have to investigate every other person that plays that instrument you know as much as possible because there's an awful lot to steal there's an awful lot to make your own and it's an awful lot of fun
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think one of the coolest stories i've ever heard you talk about was how uh, you, you guys recorded uh, Lucky Man. Can you talk a little bit about how, how the Lucky Man recording came
0: together? Yeah, but Lucky Man was recorded uh, at AdVision Studios in Godsfield Street. It was recorded by Greg and myself. Uh, basically, Keith had been late for some reason. He was often late. But this day he called through to say he was going to be late, so we managed to reschedule the time and do something else. So uh, Greg said, you've got this song, it was like three-chord song, and we had a listen to it. We said, oh, well, let's do that. So I said, well, why don't we record together? So we rehearsed it a couple of times, and we recorded together. And uh, we, we got the parts, and we did like certain things, and so we re-recorded it, and then we, by the time we recorded it for the first time, we got the rhythm guitar part, and we got all of the drum parts for the verses, the chorus, and the middle eight and stuff. It was all there, it was done. So he then added some bass to it, and started to put a couple of harmonies on the, um, on the chorus, on the lucky man, Ooh, what a lucky man he was, started to put some harmonies on those sections, and then uh, Keith turned up. Uh, Keith said, well, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so late, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he wanted to uh, he wanted to do a solo. We needed a solo on it at a certain place. So he said, well, look, instead of learning this song. This is the key, it's him. Why don't you just put a solo in there? And so he said, OK, play it to him. We played it to him. And then he got the keyboard of the day, which was the mini Moog. I think he actually played it on the large Moog synthesizer. Uh, He said, "Okay." He said, let me hear it. Anyway, the first uh, solo he played was unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. And we'd managed to record it. He didn't know. He thought he was just running it down. But we recorded it. He said, "Okay, let me have another go. And we said, and Greg and myself looked at each other and said, why? (laughs) He said, well, no, he'll do better than that. We said, No. That was sensational. He said, and Keith said, did you record And He said, yeah, let's have a listen. So we listened to it, and he, he could not believe it. He was using the wheel that bends the note, that oscillates the note and all that stuff. Um, and it was the instrument of the day, I and mean, the sound was very fresh and new to everyone. And uh, we just loved it. We said, no, that's it. He said, I need another go. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it probably did it another 10,000 times, but never captured the, uh, the excitement and the freeness and the openness that it captured on the first solo. And hmm. the first solo is what you hear on that single. So very, very important. But that just shows you how good the man is, you know.
2: Yeah. When you have, um, you know, I mean, obviously... EOP and you know it's up there with Genesis and uh, yes and you know just these these legends of British Prague rock I mean what is what does it mean to you to be a part of that that you know that pristine I mean that regal realm of, of talent uh, you know British progressive rock and roll What does that mean to you?
0: Well I mean it's, it's nice to be at the forefront of any new musical instrument. It's like, you know, a lot of people in America, you know, are at the front of that bebop, that jazz evolution, which is just sensational because that's what you gave the world, you know, rhythm and blues and jazz. And, you know, really, I mean, we've given the world prog rock. And to be at the beginning of that, to be one of the blueprint bands that came forward and said, this is how it should be done, it is an amazing position uh, to be in. And it's, it's a great feeling. At the time, you don't realise what it is and you don't realise that you are creating an art form which will go on, you know. It will never be as popular, we all know that. But it's like jazz, it will never die. It will always be there, there will always be young prog bands. So to be part of, a, of an art form that's here to stay and, we'll to, and will be talked about for years to come, it is a fantastic, it's a fantastic deal. It's just when you're creating it and when you're in it, it's like when you have fame, it all goes so fast. You, you, you can't live it, you only live it after the event, if you see what I mean. So to be part of the, the English prog rock scene at the beginning of the 70s, for me, was was just a blessing in disguise. It was something I was really proud to be in. Don't forget, having come from the, the Atomic Rooster, which was an underground proggy band, with psychedelic sort of overtones. The ERP situation for me was that much closer to my heart because we played classical music. And most of my, there was a few in my family that were classical music, we were musicians who played classical music professors and, of the music and so forth. So for me to be involved in the band that was going to be playing progressive music and using classical adaptations as well. It was like a gift from heaven. So for me, I was happy as a pig in shit, as they say. What was it like?
1: To, to work with Arthur Brown, I mean, I,
0: I kind of consider him a genius of his time. Well, to be honest with you, um, uh, I might be going to a, an Arthur Brown concert um, towards the end of this month because he's, he's got a concert here in London and a small theatre just uh, the other side of London. Um, to be working with Arthur Brown for me, I, I didn't realise what the man had done. You have to realise that the makeup, you know, and all that sort of stuff that he did with a fire helmet, all of that was before Daisy Bowie or Kiss. He was the beginner of that, of that theatrical staging of painting his face up, looking like a warrior, wearing these unbelievable clothes, then putting on a fire helmet and setting fire to it, having a song called I Am The God Of Hellfire And I Bring You all of that was monumental. That was a huge movement. That was a psychedelia. That was a psychedelic movement. That was Hate ashbury all in one person. There it was. But he was the only one giving out that theatrical theatrical psychedelic rock. And I think if he hadn't been um, in Paris, he hadn't been part of many of those shows on the Champs-Elysees, you know, which they had all those strippers and, you know, can-can girls and all of this, where lots of people, clowns, painted their face, he probably would never have come up with the idea. And if you ever get to meet him and speak to him, I think he'll tell you that that's where he got the idea to start painting his face and putting together some fictitious character. Wow. And in his case, it was the God of hellfire. But he was marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. That was the that was the beginning of another movement that I happened to be part of. You know, don't forget that Kiss followed with the makeup and blowing fire out of his mouth. You know, and one of the guys. Uh, uh, you know, it was it had all been done before. They might have done it better and had more success. But there's no doubt that Arthur was the founder of that sort of stage, sort of performance that used theatrics, costumes, props. And makeup. Yeah. And his new music yes. is fantastic too. The first album was very, very cool. Was that really, you know, though? There's not a concept there. The way the tracks flow into each other, you know, that they could be a concept. You know, for me, it was just amazing. It really, was amazing. Unfortunately, you know, there's so many people that played on the album. I think there's about three drummers on the album, mm. uh, and I'm not. I'm not quoted as being on the album, but there, there were lots of musicians. And when I asked Arthur, when they asked me to be in Band. I asked him, Do you know who's on what tracks doing what? Um, He said he couldn't tell because in those days they didn't mark the tape boxes of who did what recording, they just marked the tracks you know, what track was 13, it was a high out, what track is the bass? It's 13 and it's 12 and 10 or whatever. But they never put the musicians down. Um, it was only Arthur's name went on there. And Vincent Crane doesn't even appear on the boxes. Mm. And he was, you know, one of the writers on the, uh, I am the God of Hellfire. So, you know, it, was, it was a weird time. You got to understand there was lots of <laughs> other things involved there. You know, a few, uh, more than just beer, if you know what I
2: mean. Well, so w- would you? I know you said you were planning on attending the um, the. Brown show, would you play uh,
0: at all? No, he, um, I'm going to go, we did the Royal Affair tour in 2019, and I appeared with my band, Cold Palmer's ELP Legacy, mm. and Arthur came on and sang um, Knife Edge and Fire, mm. and then John Lodge came on and did some, and then Asia played, and then Yes played. It was one of those kind of uh, summer sort of like tours, oh, you man. know, where you play outside, 5,000 people under the uh, marquee, and then 10,000 people on the lawn if you're lucky you yeah. know. So that was the last time i actually performed with asia so uh, no asia um uh, with arthur rather so arthur doesn't actually know that i'm going to go along and see him ah, okay. uh, because i'm not 100 percent sure but we're going to hope he can get there but i've told his, his partner claire that you know we're going to try and make our way over so i won't be playing with him. i'll just be enjoying it you know and enjoying wonderful. watching him wonderful that's well,
1: amazing yeah well, we can't wait to read about your your, your book. When, when, when will your autobiography be coming out?
0: Well, it's been done. It was finished, um, like, uh, round about this time last year. And um, BMG, who, Emerson Lake of Science signed didn't want to put it out. They wanted to wait until, you know, things had cleared up with COVID, you know, so I could actually go out and promote it. And now we're looking at talking again this year and they're talking to me about you know possibly putting it out with something else, with with some vinyl, or making it part of uh, you know an Emerson, Lake and Palmer CD or something like that. So I don't know. We still need to have that meeting, and obviously you know it needs to happen soon because you need a book takes six months to turn around so it needs to be we need to have the ideas up and running by the summer i mean they've got the book um i'll just wait until they're ready but uh, it was pointless releasing it in that uh, you know 2020 2021 period uh because you know There's no way that any book could be even promoted because it's important here in Europe, not so much in America, but you actually can do a book tour where you you go to bookshops and and you sign your book and you do all of that. You don't sell a lot of copies, but it does create a little bit of stir and you get a bit more PR out of it. So, uh, I mean, that's what we're looking at doing. So it'll probably... It'll probably end up being, if it was to come out it would be Christmas this year that would be the earliest it would come
2: out Alright, right, we'll look out for that It's
0: called Fanfare for the Common Man
2: Love it, I love that title too, it's perfect, so fitting yeah. uh, Carl Palmer is so grateful for your time Is there anything else you'd uh, like to add? I know you're a very, very busy man now
0: No, no, that's fine, I've got another interview coming up in about five minutes, so it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, and both of you guys and thank you for the interview and come and see us play in the future whenever you can
2: yeah, we can't wait to see you. Yeah, I mean, we're we're just so we're, we're so grateful to you and, and uh, to all of the people you played with for your gifts of music. I mean, it's it's so enduring and and it's it's a thrill of a lifetime for us to be able to connect with you after being lifelong fans. It really means a lot to both of us.
0: Oh, okay. Well, thanks for your kind words, and uh, you stay well. And uh, I hope we can do this again another time. Yeah.